All right, Haggai chapter 2. We're working through the book of Haggai. It's a very short little book, but a very powerful message God gave to this prophet for his people then. This word of the Lord that God gave his prophet about 2,500 years ago. So this is an old word, but just because it's old doesn't mean it's not relevant. Because God's word never goes out of date. The book of Haggai only covers a four-month period. So this little book covers four months of Israel's history. And in those four months, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai four times. And God gives us the dates in the book. It's a little bitty book toward the end of the Old Testament. So the word of the Lord came once in the sixth month, came once in the seventh month. That's what we're going to talk about today. And it came twice in the ninth month. All in the second year of King Darius. Chapter 2 opens in the seventh month on the 21st day with the word of the Lord coming for the second time to Haggai the prophet. So we're going to read the first nine verses of Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, illuminate this word. Open our hearts and our minds. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, Let this word not just wash our minds, conform it to the mind of Christ, but Lord, may this word transform us, even as you work in us by your spirit, 
to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that that is your plan and that is your purpose for your people, that we would be conformed to Christ, that we would be a people in the earth, your body, your church in the earth, that would give witness to your glory, to your wisdom. We ask, God, that you would make us a people to glorify your name in all things. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 reveals that it has been almost one month to the day. So if you remember, in the end of chapter 1, it says the word of the Lord came on the 24th day of the 6th month, and the people, or the people began to work on the 24th day of the 6th month. So the word of the Lord came, he, God spoke to Haggai the prophet, he says, consider your ways, you've left my house undone, you've worked on your own homes while my house is in ruins, and you're wondering why there's no crops, you're wondering why there's scarcity everywhere, and God says, I brought that scarcity, I brought the drought on land, in the valleys, in the mountains, in the plains, I brought it to man, I brought it to beast, I brought it to all things that you put your hands to because you have left my house in ruins. Consider your ways, God told the people. And then we see that God gives us a very, a very detailed timeline here in this book that spans four months. And three weeks after the word of the Lord came the first time, it says that the people began to work on the 24th day of the month, uh, of the sixth month. Now, beginning in chapter 2, it says in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord comes. So, almost a month to the day from when the word came last time, from when the people began to engage in the work of rebuilding the temple, God gives another word to Haggai, and it's on the 21st day of the seventh month. This would have been the last day of the week-long Feast of Tabernacles that began on the 15th of that month. 15th of the seventh month began the Feast of Tabernacles. So this word comes on the last day of Tabernacles. And it was on this 21st day of the seventh month that the word of the Lord came again to Haggai. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates God's presence with his people when God tabernacled with his people. God gave these feasts, remember, to Moses and to the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt and they went to Sinai and God gave his word to the people of God. And in that wilderness journey for 40 years, because of their sin of unbelief, they would not enter into the promised land because they feared the giants more than they feared God. They feared the people more than they feared God. And they said, we can't go in there. Those people are going to kill us. And God says, okay, if that's your faith, then you wander around here in this desert for 40 years and you guys will all die and I'll send another generation in. Then they changed their mind and said, no, wait a minute. Wait, God, we'll go. And they actually did try to go, and God allowed them all to be defeated. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 
But even though they wandered because of their sin, the Bible says that God was with his people. It says that he was a pillar of fire by night and he, a pillar of cloud by day. The presence dwelt with his people. And then God gave the pattern of the tabernacle and, and Moses and the children of Israel constructed the tabernacle. They crafted the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cherubim that sat on top of it. And the presence dwelt between the cherubim on the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies. And when God would move, they'd pack the tabernacle up and they'd move with God. And when God would park, they'd set out the tabernacle and they'd stay parked until God moved again. And they did this for 40 years. Some places they stayed very short period of time. Other places they stayed longer periods of time. But God was always with his people. Now, today... In Christ, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord tabernacles with his people. In Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's house being built up, a holy habitation in the Spirit. We are the living stones that are being built into that house. And in verse 2, we see God once again specify the recipients of this message. He never just throws it out there, hey, you people, I got something to say. He's very specific in how he is addressing Haggai and who Haggai is to address. And it says that Haggai was instructed to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Now, Zerubbabel would have been, he was the rightful heir to the throne. Remember, 70 years prior to this, more than 70 years prior to this, Israel was carried away captive in 606 B.C. And the king of Judah, Judah was carried away captive, the southern kingdom. And the king of Judah was killed, and then the Babylonians put another king in. They put kings in who were in the lineage of David. And Zerubbabel was carried away to Babylon, and Zerubbabel would have been the grandson, the heir of the king. So he would have been the rightful heir. And this is why Cyrus and Darius made him the governor of Judah. He was made the governor because he was actually the rightful heir to the throne. So God is addressing the governor. He addresses Joshua, the high priest. And he addresses the remnant of the people. So the word of the Lord was addressed to all the people, to those in the highest positions of leadership down to all the remnant of the people. God's word was for all, from the greatest to the least. God's word comes to all men. It applies to all men. God is not a respecter of persons. His righteousness, his justice knows no prejudice, but he applies to all evenly. God makes it very clear in his word. He says, don't give preference because someone is poor. Don't give preference because someone is rich. Apply justice equally. Don't take into consideration. This is what we do today. We say, that's not fair. That's not. The, the buzzword today is equitable. This is not equitable. Well, God says, you don't worry about what's equitable. You just worry about what's just. And you apply justice equally there's a difference between equal and equity. Justice should be applied equally to all. 
But we don't withhold justice from some and then give harsher sentences to others in the name of equity. Well, these people, they have less, they've been oppressed, so we're going to apply the rule of equity and we're going to give them a break and not charge them for theft and we're not going to charge them for crimes that don't reach a certain level. In fact, we're not even going to arrest them. We're just going to release them. That's literally happening today in our country. That is a direct violation. That is a direct sin against God's word because God says you don't do that. If someone steals, you apply justice equally, whether they're poor or whether they're rich. It does not matter. What matters is the crime, the sin that has been committed. And God is not going to look at us one day and say, well, you know, I feel sorry for you because you didn't have as much as that guy, so I'm going to go easier on you uh, in your sin. No, God does not do that. It rains, the Bible says, on the just and the unjust. So God's word applies to all, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, it does not matter. In verse 3, God addresses the people with three questions. So here's how God begins his address to the people, to the leaders and to the people. He begins with three questions, and here are the three questions that God asks. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, it was 20 years after the the initial Babylonian invasion that the temple was actually destroyed. So the first time Babylon came, first time the Babylonian army came, they carried away people captive, but they didn't destroy the city and they didn't destroy the temple. And they placed a different king there and they said, do what we tell you to do and you'll be okay. And this is what the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah were prophesying to the people. And they said, look, the Babylonians aren't doing this to you. God's doing this to you. This is your judgment because of your sin. If you will endure this 70 years of captivity, it will go well with you. In fact, this is where God says, pray for the peace of the city. Yes, pray for Babylon. Pray for the cities that you're carried away captive to so that you can prosper in those cities. This is why we should pray for the peace of our cities today and work for the peace of our cities today in line with God's word. And so he asked this question. So most of the people there had never seen the temple before. Most of the people there were born in Babylon and had, didn't even, had never been to Judah before. Because you realize it was 52 years prior when the temple was destroyed. So depending on how old people were when they were carried away captivity, the people that remained that would have seen That former temple, they were all quite old. The majority of the people there had never seen it. They had never been there. And so God asked, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? (laughs) Question one. Then he says, how do you see it now? Remember the former temple? Picture it in your mind. Now look at this temple. How do you see it now? How do you see the former temple? Well, the former temple was nothing but a bunch of burnt rubble, burnt stones leveled to the ground. 
not, not much glory of the former is left. How do you see it now? And then he says, in comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And the answer is yes, this is nothing. And we know that when that second temple was dedicated, those that had been there and had lived long to see the former temple wept because it was so much less than what the former had been. And you might wonder, as we look at these three questions in verse 3, why is God, why is God re-traumatizing His people, having them recall the former, now look at what they have, and, and look at what's going to be rebuilt, knowing that it's going to be so much less than what was before. God was contrasting the present with the former, the first with the second. He does this a lot through Scripture. He rejects the first for the second. For those who were old enough to have been and seen the first temple, it was distressing to compare the glory of the former temple with the poverty of the temple they were rebuilding. But remember, when Saul was... Uh, king, and then the kingdom was ripped from him, and God tells Samuel, the prophet, go to Jesse, he's got a son that I will anoint king, and Samuel goes, and he looks at all the sons of Jesse, and he saw, sees this tall, handsome guy, and he says, that's got to be the king. He looks like a king, and God says, nope, that's not the king, and he goes all the way down, and he says, uh, none of these sons. God has chosen. You got anybody else? Oh, yeah, my little runt David out watching the sheep. Well, call him. And as soon as Samuel laid eyes on David, God says, there's your king. And God says, the problem, Samuel, is you look on the outward, but I look at the inward. You look on the outward appearance of man, but I look at the heart. And this is what the people of Judah were doing here. They were looking at this foundation that was so much less than what it was before. And they knew this temple that they were building up was going to be so much less glorious than it was before. But this is what man does. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks inward. The outward appearance of this second temple was lacking compared to the first. Man could only see the outward appearance, but God knew what would fill that temple one day when the Lord Jesus Christ entered into it. You do realize this is, this is 500 years before the birth of Jesus that Haggai's prophesying to the people of Judah. And when Christ entered that temple, it was not just a far surpassing glory, but one greater than the temple itself. One who would become the final temple that God would raise up. The people of Haggai's day could not see this, but God was telling them of it. God does that a lot. He tells us things we can't see, but he tells us of them. And then he says, trust me, do not fear. Yeah, but God, I can't see. Don't worry about what you can't see. Can you see me? Yes, I can see you. Then trust me, do not fear. But see, we want to see beyond God. We want to look past God. We want to try to understand in our own capacity, in our own ability. And God says, it's not for you to do that. 
you're to just trust me. I'll reveal to you what needs to be revealed, and if I don't reveal it to you, then you don't need to know it. You just need to look at me and trust in me. The Lord caused the people to face the reality of sin's consequence. That destroyed temple and that destroyed city was the consequence of their sin. And most of those present were born in Babylon. They had never, they did not experience that destruction. They did not see firsthand that destruction. They had only experienced the captivity. But now they were seeing firsthand and experiencing firsthand the consequence of the sin of God's people. The sin that, and the rebellion that brought Jerusalem and the temple to utter destruction. Now they were asked to deal with the reality of that sin, past and present. They had chosen to delay the work on God's house. They were pushing their responsibility down the road for others to deal with. And God was not going to allow that sin to remain. They finished the temple in the fourth year. This is the second year when all of this is taking place. And you realize the delay was almost 15 years. And they actually were able to finish it quickly once they had a mind to work and they actually went to work. And this is why God was chastising them. This is why God was warning them to consider their ways. This is why God was encouraging them and motivating them to do the work that he had called them to do. To not keep pushing it off on someone else. God would not, in his grace, he would not allow them to do that any longer. Today, think about our own day, our own times. Today we are seeing the consequences of sin for many of the same reasons. Our culture and institutions, especially those of education and government, have been given over to godless humanistic ideologies. The gospel of Christ and the Christian worldview that shaped our people and our nation has fallen out of favor and into disrespect, disregard. For the first time in America's history, Christianity has become a negative in our culture. People actually don't want to admit they're Christians now because it's seen as a negative. They might get canceled. So just keep that faith to yourself. You know, keep it here inside, buried real, 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 real deep. And don't let anyone see it, and then you'll be safe. That's what the world wants us to believe. That's what the enemy wants us to believe. But if we do that, as God's people, as his church, we're not going to be safe, I promise you. God will rip that open, and he will bring a judgment upon his people, his house. In fact, that's what the Bible says, judgment begins in the house of God. Problem's not the world. The world is just being who they are. They're dead in their sin. They are darkness is how the Bible describes them. The problem is not the world. The problem is the church. The church who wants to remain in her sinful slumber. That's the problem. But God in his grace, because he loves us, is not going to allow that. And that's good news. As the remnant of Judah was witness to the destruction of sin. We are witnessing the destruction of sin today. I mean, the destruction that sin is bringing today. This has been happening for many decades in subtle and covert or undercover ways, not out in the open. 
We either did not or we would not see. But 60 million murdered babies later, we cannot ignore our sin any longer. And if you don't think the murder of 60 million people is not a judgment, then we don't know what judgment is. If today, 60 million people were killed in America, there would be, outrage wouldn't even be the right word. We'd be going to war with somebody. But yet, just since 1973, when abortion was legalized, we have murdered over 60 million Americans. But nobody seems to think much about that. But I promise you God does. And we should as a nation because it is costing us right now. And it should. Sin must be reckoned with. It is our responsibility. We are the people of God. We are the salt and the light in this earth, in this world, in this nation. The blessings of God have so permeated our lives for so long that they're taken for granted. We have forgotten the price paid for us to have those blessings. Most importantly, the price paid on the cross at Calvary. We have not rejected the blessings. Oh, we've taken those. We've received those happily. But we have rejected the fountain of those blessings. We are now seeing the consequence of sin in open, violent, and destructive ways. Those things once done in secret, the hidden works of sin, are now being revealed by God. He is requiring that we deal with our sin openly. We have sought to soothe ourselves and we have heaped up preachers and teachers to tickle our ears and to heal our wounds lightly. This is not unique to our generation. Listen to the words of Jeremiah the prophet who warned the people before the Babylonians came, and in the early years of their captivity before the second invasion that saw the utter destruction of the city and the utter destruction of the temple. Jeremiah the prophet said, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Think how much covetousness drives our culture today. Social media, clicks and likes and tweets drive people's wants and desires. You can't be on social media without seeing ads and things pop up and people are, are, are flaunting and showing all the things that, that, that they have, companies driving people's wants and desires, coveting what others have in order to keep up with the latest and greatest must-have trend. This has become so normalized that we don't even consider it sin. In our culture today, coveting is no longer considered a sin. It's just considered effective marketing. That's... that's that's what it is. We just have come to accept it. And we don't really think much about it. Think of the falsehoods that have been perpetrated upon us. Jeremiah says, from the priest, from the prophets to the priests, they deal falsely. 
Think of the falsehoods perpetrated upon us from decades of indoctrination in our government schools to the falsehoods surrounding COVID. Politicians and political parties are expected to deal in falsehood. And I'm not saying COVID is false. It's not. I had it. It's a real thing. It'll make you really sick. It's a real virus. I'm saying all of the messaging that tells you one day to do this and the next day don't do this that is so confusing that you're not sure what to do except we're the people of God and we should know what to do and we should operate in wisdom to know that we're first of all trusting God and God gave us a brain to use so we can go out there and find out what we need to do and then act accordingly out of wisdom. Go see a doctor. If that doctor doesn't give you wise counsel, then get rid of that doctor and go find one that will. There's a lot of falsehood. But politicians and political parties are expected to deal in falsehood. We're in the midst of election season. The primary elections are right now. And it's standard practice for politicians to say things the people want to hear, whether they actually intend to follow through or not. It's just become standard practice. Lying is just part of the process, except we don't use the term lying. We use the term, terms like embellishment. Well, he's just embellishing the truth. No, he's lying. Well, he misspoke. No, he or she lied. That's what they did. They didn't misspeak. They lied. Uh, failed recollection. Um, I'm not sure I can recall that. I'm not sure my recollection is clear on that. No, you're just a liar. You're just... Dealing falsely because you don't want to say the truth. Now, we think all of this is just part of the way the game's played and, and, and it's part of the way the world lives. But you understand that's not how God sees it. God says, no, that's falsehood. That's a lie. That's a sin. And we can accept sin all day long and not call it sin. We can put other names on it that sound nicer and more polite than a lie, well, we can't call our politicians liars. Why not? That's what they are. Many of them. Well, that's just not, you know, it's not good manners. Well, you tell that to God. Tell that to God who says, this is why you're being judged because you deal falsely. Your life is going to be destroyed. Your city is going to be destroyed. Your beloved temple is going to be destroyed because you deal falsely and you will not call sin, sin, and take responsibility for it. That, that was 2,500 years ago. Guess what? We're living in the same realities today. God's word has not changed and God does not change. Numbers and statistics and prices are manipulated to make falsehood appear true. The real rate of inflation is this. Well, but we're not going to put groceries and gas in there, so we don't want the number to be too high because people might really freak out then. Well, maybe they should really freak out because you're dealing falsely. You're manipulating the numbers to make things look better than they really are. This is just what government does. This is what our politicians do. We should know better. The sin of dealing falsely is rampant today, not just outside the church, but inside the church. Think about this. Success in the American church today is measured, measured largely the same way that the world would measure success. The bigger, the richer, the better, the more successful, 
pastors and leaders are conditioned to seek the numbers, the money, the buildings, and the success, all the while people are perishing. This is what was happening in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day. This is what was happening in Haggai's day. This is why they warned the people. This is why God sent his word through his prophets to his people. We heal the hurt of the people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is what the false prophets of Haggai's and Jeremiah's day did. They were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace, only certain judgment. They could not believe that God would allow those hard things to happen to his people and his temple. But he did then, and he will again today, if we persist in our sin and do not turn our hearts to the Lord and repent and turn and seek his face and cry out to him to heal our land. You do realize the world is not going to do that. This is the responsibility of the church, of God's people. God's hard dealing comes because God loves his people and he will not surrender them to sin. His correction comes from His love. We must embrace that and not despise it. God is growing us up personally and corporately. We are here for a much greater purpose than our own personal happiness. Having said that, I want you to hear clearly. God absolutely wants you and all of us to be personally happy, but in faithfulness to Him in all things. We must deal with the hard questions God may be asking us. We must see things through the wide open eyes that he gives to us. We must deal in the truth. We must trust God as he is working in us and through us to will and to do according to his good pleasure and his purpose. We must know that his grace is sufficient not just to survive but to fully overcome and to thrive. In verse 4, God's exhortation and command is to be strong and work with a loving reminder that He is with them. Again, God does not just give a general exhortation, but He specifically says to Zerubbabel, the governor, Be strong and work, I am with you. To Joshua, the high priest, be strong and work, I am with you. To all the remnant of the people, be strong and work. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. When the Lord calls us to work, he never calls us to work alone. The people of Judah were called to work together with one another. As his church in the earth today, his body, we are called to work together, to function together with one another in his kingdom work. As God reminded the people of Haggai's day, we do not just work with one another, but the Lord is with us. We are never alone. The Lord is always with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. God is not only with us, but he is walking. He is waking his church from her sinful slumber. He's not just watching over us. He is waking us up. He is moving by his spirit. It is time to be strong and to work and to know that the Lord of hosts is with us. In verse 5, it's revealed that God had never left his people, he ne- and he never will. 
So in verse 5, God recalls them to remember the story of the Exodus. God doesn't leave us. We're the ones who walk away from Him and depart His path. This was seen clearly with the people of Israel as they left Egypt, went through the miraculous parted Red Sea, and promptly began to complain to God and, and believe that they were going to die after God had miraculously time and time and time again saved them. And don't worry, they're not the only ones guilty of that. We're guilty of that even today. We are. In His love and grace, He calls us back from our wayward wandering. In all things, He is ordering our steps according to His plan and His purpose. When needed, He brings us through His loving discipline. And He does this for our good and for His glory. God reminds the remnant of His people of the word that He covenanted with them when they came out of Egypt. He affirms that His Spirit still remains among them. The Lord then utters the command, do not fear. And that's not a suggestion, that is a command. God's promise to his ab- of His abiding presence is relevant for us today. We are God's people that He has covenanted with through the blood of the Lamb, the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will never leave us. He will never forsake us. This is His promise to us. Therefore, God's command is do not fear. Listen to the writer of Hebrews quote God's promise. The very promise that we're speaking of. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So this was a promise given to Moses, given to Joshua, given to the children of Israel. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There is... There is another warning in this verse out of Hebrews against covetousness. There is no new sin under the sun. We're dealing with the same sins today that they dealt with 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, all the way back to the garden. God's promise is that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we are to hold fast because God's promise holds fast. The Lord is our helper, fear not. What can man do to us? That's a question. What can man do to us? You might say, well, they can kill us. Well, yeah, they can. So what else can they do? Do you fear death? Because death has no hold over you. It has no power over you if you belong to Jesus. If you are a child of God, death, death has nothing to hold you with. It can't do anything except be God's servant that takes you face to face with Jesus. And so the question The question asked here, what can man do to me? The answer is, he can do nothing. He can do nothing to us. Nothing we should fear. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, the prophet continues with the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, and then in parentheses it says, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, 
says the Lord. That temple that they were crying about, that temple that appeared so impoverished, that was so much less than that former temple. He says, I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. After the command of fear not, God warns that in a little while he will shake the heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And then he says he will shake all nations. Given the reference in verse 5 to the word of God that God covenanted with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, it seems that God is speaking here of Mount Sinai where he gave them his word and the earth literally shook and the people feared the Lord greatly. Remember they said, Moses, you talk to God. We don't want to talk to him. He's too scary for us. So you go talk to God and you come back and talk to us. The reference to once more. Remember, God further says once more. That means he already did once and he's going to do it again. That was Sinai. He'd already done that. Well, once more, God will shake heaven and earth, sea and dry land. It reminds the children of Israel of that shaking that took place at Sinai when God gave his word to his people. It also speaks of a future shaking that will take place after a little while. The only place in the New Testament the words of the prophet Haggai are found is in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews references this very verse, verse 6. He references God's promise in Haggai 2.6 to once more shake earth and heaven. So let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12. This is found in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 25 through 29 so that you have the context that's being presented here by the writer of Hebrews as he quotes the prophet Haggai. Remember, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. So if we're wondering what, what does that mean, well, here is the commentary given to you by God here in the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit's commentary on what God was referring to in Haggai. Hebrews 12, verse 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth... Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. <clears throat> so in Hebrews... The Lord is warning those who profess faith in Christ but still seek to add the deeds of the law to their salvation. Specifically, the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Jews living in Italy who wanted to go back to Jerusalem and offer animal sacrifice in the temple. 
The whole book is about this. And it starts by telling them who Jesus is. He's better than the high priest. He's better than angels. It goes through. It references the feast and the ceremonies revolved around the feast. Specifically, this is addressing those who want to go back to Jerusalem to sacrifice those animals in the temple. Very likely, this would reference a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to keep one of the three pilgrim feasts required by the law. So there were seven feasts originally given to Israel. There's, there's, there's more today. Uh, Purim and Feast of Dedication were added later. But originally in the law that God gave to Moses, there were, there were seven feasts. Three of those feasts required every male to appear before God personally in Jerusalem. Back then, but there was not a Jerusalem, God says, in the place that I chose for my name to dwell forever. And that was on purpose. Because the place that God chose for his name to dwell forever was never meant to be the city of Jerusalem or the temple in the city of Jerusalem. It was meant to dwell and will dwell eternally forever and ever and ever in his holy city, New Jerusalem, which is his church, pictured for us coming down out of heaven in the book of Revelation. In other words, you are the place that God has chosen for his name to dwell forever because you are the church, you are the holy Jerusalem. But then in Haggai's day, the law demanded that they go, and, um, or in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Jesus' day, in the day of the first century church, before the temple was destroyed, they were still keeping those pilgrim feasts going back three times a year. They go back at Passover, they go back at Pentecost, and they go back at Tabernacle. And I think that the writer of Hebrews quotes here Haggai, not just because it talks about the shaking, but the word about the shaking comes on the 21st day of the seventh month, which was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so very likely, uh, this was referring to the Feast of Tabernacles that these Jews perhaps wanted to go back to Jerusalem and celebrate that feast and offer up their sacrifice. So I believe here in the book of Hebrews, it helps unlock the mystery that may surround this shaking of all things prophesied by Haggai. From history, history is important. We know that there was a great shaking. God says, I'm not just going to shake earth, but I'm going to shake earth and heaven, land and sea, and all nations. Now, Haggai is writing, this is around 520 B.C., and so we know history. God has laid it out for us. He laid it out in the book of Daniel, the succession of kingdoms and empires. Babylon had already been replaced by Persia. Greece would soon be, rise up and replace Persia. Alexander the Great would change history, but then Rome would take over Greece, and then Rome would rule for half a millennium. For 500 years, Rome ruled the world, the known world, the world that has influenced us today and still influences us today. And it was that Roman rule, it was all of those empires in succession that God raised up and tore down, raised up and tore down. God had prepared the world for the arrival of the Messiah. The first advent of Christ would take place in a world that God had prepared for his coming. All the shaking would take place in a span of less than 600 years if we include the destruction 
of the temple. But I want to submit to you that shaking is still taking place today. We have to include the destruction of the temple because that ended that sacrificial system and now no Jews could go back even if they wanted to to Jerusalem because it's gone and it has never been rebuilt because God has already raised up the third temple. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John says in John chapter 2. This is what Jesus himself has alluded to. So this shaking that Haggai prophesies and the writer of Hebrew references has taken place and it is continuing to take place. God continues the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, the things that which cannot be shaken, so that those would remain. The prophesied events of history culminated with the coming of the Messiah and the eventual removal of the temple made with hands. All of this was to raise up the temple made without hands, the risen Lord Jesus Christ and His body, the church. Christ and His kingdom remain and cannot be shaken. But those things that man has made to replace God and his created order, those are the things that are still being shaken today. This is what we are experiencing now in our own day, the continual shaking that is removing all that can be shaken so that the things which cannot be shaken remain. This is a glorious thing that we are not to fear, but we are to rejoice in. Our God is a consuming fire. He is in control. He declares in verse 7 that he will shake all the nations. And the nations will come to the desire of all the nations. And God will fill this temple. He's referring to that second temple being rebuilt. He will fill this temple with glory. And that did happen with the coming of Christ in his first advent. The nations are coming to him and giving their treasure to him. The most precious treasure being the lives from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is the inheritance of Christ. The nations. Not gold, not silver. God filled that temple, that second temple, with a far greater glory than gold or silver or precious jewels that Solomon's was filled with. He filled it with the presence of one greater than the temple itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. From the time Mary carried Jesus into the temple for his dedication to the final week of his life on earth, when he was teaching every day in the temple, God filled that rebuilt temple with a glory that cannot be surpassed. In verse 8, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And he is reminding his people that if I wanted to build this temple out of solid gold, I could do it. But I'm not trying to build a structure to impress you. God says, I'm rebuilding this temple to teach you, to point you to something far greater than this temple. To a glory far greater than the glory that gold and silver may have. He points us to the Lord Jesus. And the temple that he would become and is now. Verse 9, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. 
The glory of this latter temple was greater than the former, not in size or scope. In fact, the second temple was actually much larger in size and scope than Solomon's temple. The glory of the temple never had anything to do with architecture, but everything to do with the presence of the Lord of hosts. Now, God made the architecture beautiful because he wanted it to reflect his glory, but architecture can never accurately reflect the glory of God, and the temple was never meant to be that. It was always meant to point us to Christ, the true temple. And when that temple came, you notice that God did away with that second temple because it was just a road sign pointing us to Jesus. And when we're in the presence of Jesus, we don't need a road sign anymore. This is why Jesus himself said, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Jesus spoke those words referencing himself. Jesus was always greater than the temple. Man looks at that which is made with hands, but God says there is something greater. So it is still true today. One greater than the temple dwells among us and within us. The Bible teaches that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you belong to Christ. Do you trust Him as your Savior? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Do you know Him as your Lord? Have you become a new creation in Christ? If so, then you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are, and all the other living stones, you are being built up into a holy habitation of God in the Spirit. You are the house of God, His temple in the earth today. God oversaw the destruction of that second temple, for the Lord Jesus Christ is the temple that was raised up. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple save the Lamb who is the temple, a temple in a city that cannot be shaken. That is what we have now and for eternity. Listen to the words of John the Revelator. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations are those who are saved, shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. The desires of the nation shall come to it. Just as Haggai prophesied, the nations are coming and bringing their glory and their honor into God's holy city, His church. That city is not just in heaven. That city is on earth today. It is His church. Haggai prophesied in a four-month span, and he gave the word of the Lord so the work of the Lord would go forward. He prophesied of things in the immediate future, but he also prophesied of things that would happen in the far future to the coming of the Messiah and beyond, even to our day. God's word is still coming to pass. The shaking of all things that is taking place is God's work. He is with us. We have no reason to fear. We are called to be faithful in all things, even in the midst of God's shaking. We are to be bold and confident, for we know that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that, church, is good news. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. This table is a reminder of all of these truths, 
of the victory that we have in Jesus bought for us by his death on the cross. The righteousness and the holiness that has been applied to us by the blood of Jesus. Not because we're righteous, not because we're holy, but because he is. And when we in our unrighteousness and our unholiness touch the holy, guess what happens to us? We are counted holy. So, Christian, welcome to Jesus. Welcome to the table. We'll all be served together and we'll all uh, take the elements uh, together after everyone has been served. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We need to remember that, especially in these days we're living in. We are commanded to live accordingly. We are not to be moved by the world, and we are not to be moved by the shaking of this world. The Lord is shaking all things to remove all things that can be shaken. All the creature has made in order to replace the creator. Those are being shaken to their very foundations, and they will be found wanting. God is shaking all things so that all that cannot be shaken remains. This is good news. So let us rejoice and remember Jesus is Lord of all. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you.